Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. bank. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we will dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at the outlook for corporate credit. Plus, why China may face greater challenges than the U.S. in tech's Cold War. But first, we want to begin with a look at earnings getting a bump and stocks hitting a stride now that the election's over. Then you have good vaccine news. For more, we bring in Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist Gina Martin-Adams. Gina, no matter what happens now, we had an unbelievable market move on Monday. I mean, people who were in the market for decades said they hadn't seen anything like it. How did you understand it? Yeah. It's been a roller coaster couple of weeks, honestly. So it was um, quite the crescendo on Monday after the election, a lot of selling into the election, then a really strong rally after the election, a significant rotation back and forth, a lot of choppiness at the sector and factor level, and then a very, very strong surge on Monday. I, I think the way that I interpret Monday's price action is kind of a combination of things. First, it was really a significant follow-through from the week prior. Uh, we had broken through some pretty critical resistance levels and saw, and seen some significant um, participation in the market after the election, and we hadn't really seen that prior to the election. So it was some follow-through from the good news um, uh, interpreted by the market of just simple election relief. But then, of course, you did have the vaccine news from Pfizer, um, which creates some confidence that we will find our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We will see some economic um, relief coming into 2021. A vaccine is imminent, um, and the market certainly celebrated that, and it celebrated it through rotation, and it's a rotation that's really really begun all the way back in September and has just been continuing, albeit in fits and starts, and strengthening post-election. Yeah, the rotation's really been the theme, um, Gina. And again, as you mentioned, starting in September, but really be coming to the fore here over the last couple of weeks here. Um, we've seen it before. I'm not sure for this duration. Is it for real this time, do you think? 
We think so. Uh, we changed our uh, sector and factor strategies, all started to signal a rotation into value and away from growth, into smaller caps and away from large caps, into cyclicals and out of tech, all the way back as of September 1st. And nothing has changed in our sector and factor work to suggest that it's going to end anytime soon. I think fundamentally what's happened is we are starting to dig our way out of this crisis, evidenced by the fact that third quarter and second quarter earnings results were just extraordinary relative to expectations, much, much stronger relative to expectations, and analysts are starting to mark up their forecast for EPS growth into the next couple of quarters as a result. And those markups are going into value stocks more so than growth stocks. The expectation is going into 2021, small cap revenue growth will outpace large cap revenue growth. Value EPS growth will more than double growth segment EPS growth. So we're starting to see a rotation on fundamental shift. And that fundamental shift is really about a much faster than expected recovery and a continuation of that recovery and a rebuilding of confidence in the recovery into 2021. Uh, will earnings back it up? Uh, so far, so good. I mean, it, it, I've been amazed by how much better earnings uh, continue to be in the third quarter relative to second quarter. I mean, going into third quarter season, analysts were expecting a 21% drop in earnings on a year-ago basis. Right now, we're on pace for an 8.5% decline. So that's a really substantial beat, an even bigger beat than the second quarter beat was uh, when economy started opening up a little bit faster than anticipated. So, so far, earnings are just dramatically beating analyst expectations. What we see for the fourth quarter, analysts are still expecting a 10% drop year over year in the fourth quarter. That seems incredibly conservative, particularly when in the third quarter, as we were just starting to open up, we got an 8.5% decline year over year. Uh, so I do think that we're going to continue to see earnings beat expectations. Uh, forecasts are very, very slim, um, at least into the first quarter of next year. They start to get a little trickier after the first half of 2021, and that's when we might need to start thinking about whether or not expectations are a little too high. Is the economy really on track to beat those expectations? Can companies surpass a, a little bit of a higher bar? But for now, it does appear that earnings are likely to back up uh, our anticipation of an acceleration in growth and a strengthening of growth into 2021. It's been a great call, Gina. Um, I'm a little bit of a glass half empty person, and I just see these really <laughs> terrible uh, pandemic numbers on a global scale. Scale, I think that raises the risk potentially of you know possible shutdowns or partial shutdowns of the economy. You temper that with some of the good news we did get out of Pfizer and, and Eli Lilly. How do you factor that pandemic over the next six months into your kind of just equity market outlook? Yeah. Well, as an equity strategist, I'm a little glass half full, Paul. So <laughs> maybe we can balance each other. I was just—we we, we were just talking to Noel uh, Herbert, so you can tell where we got our glass half empty view. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I I do take your point, and we've talked about this a lot over the last, you know, call it nine months now. Is the simple fact that the second, third, and fourth wave will not be as shocking as the first wave is something to consider in your investment strategy. The first shock is always the worst, and we've been anticipating second, third, and fourth waves since the first shock. I remember when uh, I last saw Gina in March. We talked to each <laughs> other up in the snack area. We talked about airlines. It seems like a million years ago. Gina, That's thanks right. a lot. <laughs> the Gina Martin-Adams, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. Coming up in the program, what the future of corporate credit looks like. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on some 2,000 companies in 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. 
And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, our next guest points out that spread and treasury gains are paving a lower yield path in investment grade. For more on the outlook for corporate credit, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Credit Analyst Noel Herbert. Noel, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, where are we in the credit space here? We're, you know, we're nine months into this pandemic. What are you seeing in terms of credit right here? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? I mean, we're in an environment where, uh, as of today, and uh, of course, thanks for having me. Maybe I should start with that. Uh, you know, we're in an environment today where we just, you know, we're basically at record low yields for high yields. So basically assessing no damage from the pandemic there, at least at this moment. And for investment grade, you're kind of in a similar situation where yields are below 2%. So both uh, very sanguine, both with a big heavy hand of helping from, from the Fed after they announced their emergency measures, obviously, uh, in the earlier part of uh, the post-pandemic environment. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit optimistic, I guess, is the best way to, to phrase it. Well, okay. If we still see 10-year Treasury yields, like, rising around to 1% and the curve steepen, how much, lo- how much longer can corporate credit yields go? So, for investment grade, that's going to be a real challenge, right? So, you're, you're already at a place where spreads, and if you think about investment grade yields, right, you get the Treasury or the risk-free rate plus the spread. You know, spreads are maybe 30 basis points from record lows. Um, and then you've got, obviously, treasuries, which are also suppressed. So if we get sort of an economic growth environment where we get that curve steepener that's talking about, Alex, where we get to, you know, some people are calling for maybe 130, which would be the call of our rates analyst, Ira Jersey, if you get sort of a growth environment next year. Uh, for investment grade, that's going to be very challenging to deliver anything above your coupon and indeed, you're probably going to be closer to neutral returns. High yield's a little bit of a different animal because it doesn't really trade as much to the Treasury because it tends to trade a little bit more with the equity momentum. Uh, and there, the dynamic for the year ahead will really be much more contingent upon, you know, what kind of economy are we going to really have, right? So if you look at high yield, almost a quarter of high yield is in sectors that are still impacted by you know, economic closures, you're talking about leisure, travel, airlines, et cetera. So you still have a quarter of your market that has arguably some default risk there, uh, you know, against the coupon inside of 5%. So even if the risk tolerance is there, it's going to be challenging to absorb any incremental defaults unless, you know, markets are just totally crazy and anybody that wants to access capital can access capital. Well, Noel, I know as a top-notch credit analyst, you see the glass half full, uh, maybe half empty, I should say. How, exactly. <laughs> yeah, half empty. How critical is it for the credit markets to get this round of stimulus and sooner rather than later? So I, I think for investment grade, it's a little bit less relevant because most of those companies pulled forward financing. They never really lost access to the capital markets. Uh, and so incremental stimulus matters at the margin for some of your sectors, like maybe in energy uh, and, and from a profitability standpoint, maybe for the banks, if you've got the steeper yield curve, et cetera. But in terms of just pure mechanics of the marketplace, stimulus, not really a big feature for them. 
uh, high yield going to be a much bigger deal, right? Because you're going to need some sort of, are you going to get another round of bailouts for for the airlines? What are you going to do about hotels if occupancy stays below sort of 40%, right? There's whole segments of the market and, you know, real estate and retail, et cetera, et cetera, uh, where you need some sort of program in place to help paper over those losses because most of those companies so far have done it through borrowing new capital. Um, so you're going to have even increasing, we're already at record leverage, you can have increasingly higher leverage uh, is, you know, again, still kind of muted profitability. So those are companies that in order to sort of paper over uh, a suboptimal economic environment are obviously going to need external capital from somewhere and stimulus would be a big part of that. Uh, especially if you get, uh, you know, something in Georgia that happens that allows, you know, control of the Senate and you get a bigger stimulus that aids the municipalities, that would certainly help high yield as well. Yeah, but come on, you got the Fed. Anything bad happens, the Fed's going to come in and say, guys, we're going to buy these uh, junk bond ETFs and everything's going to be fine. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm also a little serious here. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it it was a big deal, certainly an investment grade. And I think if we break down sort of my, you know, my bull case as as a class, half-empty kind of guy, my bull place for IG is that you get a, an economy that's just bad enough uh, that the Fed has to do two things. One, obviously, extend its provision for the corporate bond buying program that's due to expire in December. And two, going either implicit or explicit into yield curve control. And obviously, they've been a little bit reluctant to lean that way, although they've indicated they might stretch out some of the durations of their buys. That would be a really beneficial for investment grade, because then you can start keeping those longer durations or those longer tenor maturities anchored at a lower rate and just allow spread to compress, and then you can get some decent returns out of IG. High yield, again, you know, a less direct beneficiary of the Fed. A lot of the efforts of the Fed were really focused on, you know, your fallen angel names, particularly a name like a Ford, uh, where you had the big finance operation, but they didn't really dabble in other parts of the curve so much. Um, they could certainly go bigger there, but, you know, at least with my talks with people there, there is kind of the concern of the moral hazard issue, so they don't want to get too, too big. Uh, that could always change if things get chaotic, but I think high yield is going to be sort of left to its own a little bit uh, and, and sort of left mm-hmm. of a direct beneficiary. So we'll see. We'll see. So, Noel, what are we seeing in terms of funds flows in the credit space? I would think mm-hmm. if people are getting a little bit more optimistic about the economy, whether it's vaccine-related or just uh, fiscal mm-hmm. stimulus-wise, seeing maybe funds flow out of IG and into high yield? Uh, that's certainly what we've been seeing. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, obviously, you know, a short-term trend here, right, over the last couple of weeks, that's what we've seen. So people are looking at investment grade where you've obviously got what's known as duration exposure, right? So your average maturity is longer, so your sensitivity to changes in interest rates is higher. So if you're worried about the reflation trade or whatever else, that means problems for investment grade. So we've seen money come out of that asset class into the far more equity-oriented high-yield market. Uh, again, it, you know, it's a two-week trend, um, and so we'll see how it goes. But, you know, the two weeks or the three weeks before that, it was exactly the opposite, where people were concerned heading into the election and taking money out of high yield. And the bankers are happy, which is all I really care about. Bloomberg <laughs> Senior Intelligence Credit Analyst Noel Herbert, and he's also the co-director of research. He wears a couple of hats. He's a busy guy. We appreciate his time. I did not know that about yes, Noel. Very is. cool. All right. Well, coming up on the program, why China's burden is higher than the U.S. in the tech dispute.
You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It is 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. So China may actually face greater challenges than the U.S. in the ongoing tech cold war. To help us understand, we wanted to bring in a Bloomberg Intelligence senior industry analyst, Anand Srinivasan. Uh, Anand, why is it tougher for China than the U.S.? Uh, if, if we look at the um, design capabilities of China, they are are disproportionately allocated towards hardware assembly, um, Alex and Paul, relative to the components that go into them. So China, uh, if we step back and take a look at it, its, its intent over the last several years has been to build out its tech prowess, right from the basic building blocks to the final product. 
And unfortunately, where it's going to fall disproportionately short relative to the U.S., Japan, and Europe is in the components that go into it. So if we look at servers, PCs, smartphones, all of the products are made in China, true, assembled in China, true, Uh, but the components that go into them are designed mostly in the U.S. mm -hmm. The components that make those components are designed (laughs) and built mostly in the U.S. and Japan. So that ecosystem if it breaks down and the U.S. and China separate, is going to disproportionately disadvantage China relative to the U.S. That's very interesting, Anand. And I know you guys, your big tech team, has got a big report out on this issue, covering it from every which angle. Um, it, it seems like, is this as it relates to the trade war, is this something that the U.S. tech industry is saying, you know what, we, while we may have the real smarts here in the whole supply chain, we need to probably take back some of that manufacturing to de-risk ourselves. Has that been a byproduct of these trade tensions over the last mm-hmm. year or so? Good question. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, de-risking is definitely on the minds of all the tech companies. One of the things that we have posited and we have started to see this, uh, both in this Apple supply chain and with other hardware companies, is that manufacturing is going to certainly move out of China. I'm not so sure it's going to move back into the U.S., but it's going to fragment. I don't think that companies are are willing to put all of their eggs into a single basket. And China's dominance in electronics um, assembly or manufacturing has taken taken a couple of decades to hit this point. So nobody wants to face this again, be it China, be it India, be it Taiwan, be it Vietnam. Nobody is now putting their eggs into one basket. They're fragmenting it and they are making it um, a sort of a diversified network. The net of it is that China will still be a big piece for um, many, many years to come, but it will be a smaller big piece for those years. Can China change that? Like, can they start to manufacture the pieces that go into the chips? Can they stake some more claim here? Uh, That's a very good question, Alex. And uh, yes, Is, is it possible? Yes. Is it Likely in the next five years or so? No, Mm. because it's a combination of uh, capital, labor, time, effort, IP. And, you know, if you look at the technology component work that has been done over the last three decades, um, it's it's been iterative, right? So every uh, breakthrough, per se, stands on the 17 breakthroughs that came ahead of it. Um, the notion of things like Moore's Law, which was pioneered by Gordon Moore, which says transistors can double every 12 to 18 months, is as much a, an economic thing as much as it is a transistor shrinkage thing. So if you look at ARM, which is a UK-based company, which is going to be potentially acquired by NVIDIA if it has its way, makes intellectual property libraries so that you can take these individual Lego building blocks and build a fancy structure. Your time to market to make that chip, if you may, gets a whole lot shorter shorter as a result. So without these building blocks, uh, it becomes very hard to build your multifaceted structure. Um, And that's where China is going to find itself uh, uh, sort of handicapped a little bit. Hey, Anand, as you chat with uh, your companies in Silicon Valley, what's the general thought about a Biden presidency as it relates to, you know, just tech more broadly? Yeah, so I think that the China rhetoric, everybody agrees that the China rhetoric, um, um, while the rhetoric may need to change, I think the 
the underlying some of these changes that are coming about in the U.S. China relationship, particularly as it stands in tech, um, need to occur. And you know, companies are themselves moving their um, uh, manufacturing bases into multiple locations. Uh, in many a case, they have been ahead of the curve. Um, we'll see several percentage points of manufacturing of major products, such as the iPhone or PCs, move away from China. But I think that you know, there's this balance that we have to have. China is uh, uh, about 20% of iPhone consumption, for example. Anand, so good to talk to you. I feel like I learn every time I speak with you, Anand Srinivasan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst. Coming up on the program, a look at Boeing and its 737 MAX. It's set to fly again. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on some 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. 
So Boeing's operating cash flow will turn positive as the MAX is set to fly again. For more, we want to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Industry Analyst George Ferguson. What? <laughs> it's going to fly again? Believe it or not, I think the, the, long, the long and winding road is, is nearing a culmination point where we get the Boeing MAX uh, recertified. When? When? So uh, we think... Uh, it, it could be, we think before the end of the year, it could be as soon as in the next couple of weeks, but it, it wouldn't concern us at all, uh, even if it was delayed into the, the very beginning of 2021, but it looks pretty imminent. So, George, who it, in the world we live in, it's almost the question is who cares? Who's buying planes? Who's accepting delivery of planes? Um, what does it mean for Boeing, really, at this stage? Well, I mean, this is the most important airplane in their lineup. It's... Um, it's the vast majority, generates the vast majority of their cash, and so it's very important to Boeing. And even though right now it doesn't seem to matter because no one's placing orders for airplanes, uh, there are a lot of orders already on the books for the airplane that haven't been canceled with airlines that do want the airplane, like Southwest and Ryanair. They may not want as many uh, as they did a, a year or two ago, but they still want the airplane, and they still know that you know, look if like like the news this week, the Pfizer news this week. If we get a vaccine, air travel will be quite robust again. Could be quite robust within a, a year or two, and they'll these airlines will want to be ready to capture that demand. And the Boeing Max is uh, it's the workhorse of fleets. The majority of uh, you know narrow body single eyes, the majority of fleets around the globe. You need a good one. You want one with uh, good fuel efficiency, like the Max or even the Neo, for that matter. Uh, and so they'll want the airplane, and they know that. So I think they'll be excited, too, to get it. Um, in, in the meantime, have we seen airline companies either cancel their orders for the MAX or delay them? And then how does that work out for Boeing? Yes, yeah, so, you, you know, around the globe, airlines have been delaying. We call, we use the word deferral in the industry, uh, airplane deliveries. And they're, they're, they're deferring for the, the Boeing MAX. They're deferring for the Airbus A220 NEO. I mean, generally, airlines are very crunched for cash right now. Um, you know, the summer was decent for them, as in, as in demand started to recover a little bit, but but they were still down at least 50% or more compared to uh, last year. So cash was tight. Airlines are trying to defer all over the place. There were more um, outright cancellations of the Boeing Max. We traditionally don't see cancellations of orders. Airlines just defer. You know, they talk to the airplane manufacturer, and they get their deliveries kicked out a couple of years. In, in the case of the MAX, the airlines had the option to cancel because the MAX was delayed for so long. And so a number of them did. It's not that they hate the airplane. It's just that they had a free option to cancel, so they did. And they, they didn't have a clear line of sight to where demand was going to recover. And those airlines know that if they do need the airplane, they can uh, they can go out and place another order, and Boeing will probably be more than happy to fulfill their order. And we also saw lessors do a lot of cancellation and lessors buy airplanes that aren't leased to customers in the view that there might be more demand for air travel uh, in the coming years than the airlines expect. Clearly, that's got, not going to be the case for the next bunch of years. So if you're a lessor, you absolutely cancel any airplane where you could uh, in the coronavirus downturn. Hey, George, it's been, you know, when this first happened, we were thinking, gee, maybe weeks to get this thing fixed, and then it stretched into months, and here we are more than a year. Do you think there's any intermediate to long-term damage to Boeing just maybe in terms of market share vis-a-vis Airbus? Um, 
You know, I think that um, I think that the airplane will fly and flee to be a very successful airplane for decades. I think for sure there's a bit of reputational damage uh, here for Boeing. And there may be some customers that shy away from it in the first, you know, year or so as they as they watch how the Max developed. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, you don't, you'd never think of sort of a, a company, any of these aerospace companies, Boeing or Airbus, as putting a product forward that would have a flaw uh, as bad as, as the Max seemed to have had. Um, but I think that in time, uh, provided everything goes well, that, that that will clean up. But I think initially there could be some concerns, but longer term, I think it could be a very successful airplane, provided no additional problems. And I really think the, that Boeing and the FAA have really poured over the airplane, and we don't expect additional problems. The the I was going to say the funny thing, but that was a poor choice of words. The interesting thing that happened, though, is that um, the FAA was like the last regulator to kind of get on the the max issue, right? Didn't weren't the Chinese regulators on it first, and then the European regulators? So is it different regionally for Boeing because there's going to be different approvals or different um, oversight now because the FAA lost some credibility there too? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the um, the world aviation regular regulators usually move in a certain you know in in, uh, in a coordinated fashion you know where if one approves something the others will recognize it and call it approved and for sure the max uh, challenges broke down that global coordination and I think that was all about the FAA you know some things that had slipped at the FAA and now the FAA has made moves to fix that. I think the global regulators want that coordination again because there's there's just too much work uh, you know, with all the different airplanes around the globe that get certified from time to time to be doing everything independently. And aviation is such a global industry and so uh, so uh, you know interlocked with uh, different regions of the world. So again, there's there's some reputational risk. I think the FAA. Uh, overcompensated to to a degree and really uh, dug through the airplane pretty intensely. Such a good point. All right. Thanks so much, George. Bloomberg Intelligence Industry Analyst George Ferguson. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. 
Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts While switching gears to politics, our next guest points out that a Biden plus Republican Senate would limit 2021 health care drama. Let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence senior government analyst Brian Rye. So, Brian, we're not done and dusted as it relates to this election here, but it appears that we're going to have Biden in the White House, a Democratic-controlled House, but likely a Senate that is controlled by the Republicans. What does that mean for health care? You know, uh, thanks, Paul, for having me. I, I think that it's generally a positive outcome for the healthcare industry. Going into the election, there were concerns that you would have the so-called blue wave where Republicans, I'm sorry, where Democrats would not only win control of the presidency, but also control of the Senate and expand their majority in the House. And, and while certainly uh, we have President-elect Joe Biden, it looks like, to your point, that Republicans will either hold on to a slim majority in the Senate or, in a worst case for them, have a 50-50 split. And Republicans have actually eaten into the House Democrats' uh, majority there. So I think that what that basically means is that for pharma, for example, some of the more draconian actions uh, that were on the table, uh, of, you know, heading into the election are probably not. So you're not going to see, uh, you know, giving the government the ability to, depending on your point of view, negotiate or dictate uh, drug prices. You're not going to see those types of things. So much more modest reforms, um, I think, are on the table. Now, if you do have a Biden presidency, the one thing that I think you might see that's of concern to pharma, uh, for example, is, you know, having new heads at the FDA, at the FTC, so you might see a harsher stance on some proposed merger uh, activity. You might see a slower uh, review process for some new breakthrough drugs at the FDA, especially given some of the concerns coming after President Trump's comments about the FDA and getting a vaccine approved. I, I think there are some concerns about scientific rigor that the Democrats may want to address. Uh, what about the flip side and the Affordable Care Act? So, you know, barring a surprise from the Supreme Court, I think you'll see, um, you know, likely status quo with the Affordable Care Act. From the standpoint of health insurers and hospitals, you know, I think their their concern going in had been, you know, while you may not get the, the whole Medicare for all, that you would see a more more of a trend towards government involvement in the health insurance landscape. That would obviously be bad for health insurers if you could crowd them out of some markets. Also bad for hospitals if you have a shift in the payer mix away from commercial payers toward more government payers, you know, they tend to pay less than their commercial counterparts. I think, again, especially if you have a Republican-controlled Senate, a lot of those things are, are pretty much off the table. That's not something that Republican leadership uh, would support and not something that I think um, a narrow majority in the House would, would want to spend their time and energy on. You know, from again, from the Biden administration, new heads at HHS, at CMS, 
you might see them roll back some of the actions that the Trump administration unilaterally took. I think those are generally be neutral to positive for the industry as long as they're not eating into, um, you know, the, the, the business models uh, for health insurers and hospitals. And I don't think they will probably see them throw some more money into the health insurance exchanges, for example, and managed care would be fine with that. Brian, just real quickly, uh, 30 seconds, which hospitals that are really at risk here? Because they've had a tough time to, even with the, uh, with the pandemic. Well, you know, you have you, you to do this in 30 seconds, Paul. I will say that, you know, we're still dealing with the effects of the pandemic, you know, for those stocks and for those companies. You know, we're still not sure what the next, if there's going to be additional uh, COVID-based relief, more funds uh, plowed into them, both the hospitals that have had to deal with the pandemic and those that haven't had to deal with the pandemic, but with the loss of revenue coming from, you know, foregone elective procedures. So they're going to have to balance those concerns with also trying to get more people insured. If that includes a government-run option, that probably means lower reimbursement rates for those same hospitals. So it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate balancing act, and we'll see how that plays out in 2021. You kind of did it in 30 seconds, Brian. All right, yeah, uh, Brian good. Rye is pretty good. Uh, Brian Rye, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Government Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.